Good morning. Please stand for the reading of today's epistle lesson from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 and 11 through 16. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life of worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much for reading our lesson, Michael, and grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. It's good to see all of you. It's been good to see our students after the first full week of school who are already looking forward to Labor Day, I'm sure. Uh, we're grateful uh, that you're here this morning, and it's so good to be in God's house and to be in worship with you. Caroline, my goodness, what a marvelous um, gift of music uh, and a pretty good backup band really, too. Uh, we're grateful to Caroline Chancel Choir. Um, Cameron, thank you so much for leading us. Cameron is a, a regular with us, and I don't know if you know this, but, but he plays for other concerts that come about. Like, he played for ELO, Electric Lighthouse Orchestra, a rock band from the 70s and 80s, and uh, so he left the rock business to come to the rock, uh, and so we're always grateful. We're always grateful. So I appreciate so much, Jonathan, sharing with you the good news. We're in a baby boom on our staff at Brentwood United Methodist Church, and I happen to have a couple of pictures by permission to share with you. Uh, this is Adam Crane V, as you've heard about, or otherwise known as AC. He already has a nickname, AC. And then that second, isn't that incredible? Uh, Janie B, big sister, Carlisle, I have permission. She's in her jammies, but I have her permission 
to share this with you. And these two kids are double PKs. I mean, they get it from both sides of the family because Carlisle, a pastor at Franklin First and Adam with us, and we are so, so grateful. And Ryan Jones, you are next, my friend. Ryan and Devin, uh, expecting in December. You aware of that? (laughs) I wasn't sure if Devin told you, but she told me about it. We're excited about that. You know, we don't celebrate near enough, uh, and so it's just great to celebrate with you all a little bit. We started a series last week that we're in our second week. It's a five-week series called Core Values. And we said last week that core values are essentially the internal belief and principle on which an organization determines its goals, its objectives, and its future. I like to think of core values as sort of the guardrails that guide us in discernment, in decision-making, and in our direction as a body. And I didn't say this, but I'm gonna say it today. I think it's absolutely critical that our behavior aligns with our values. That's critical so that core values actually become core practices. Because when they do, there is a degree of cohesion and harmony that happens within the body. And when they don't, uh, there is a dissonance and friction that comes. For example, last Sunday afternoon, after the three services here, we had a baptism at the village, which is our daughter church in Nolensville. Travis Garner is our pastor. And we had a student, uh, Margot Binkley, who wanted to be immersed. And so we don't have a tub here, but Travis has a tub there. And so we met there about 1.30 on Sunday afternoon. And it was just a marvelous moment for, for this child, this student. She's a sixth grader. Uh, her family and friends were there. As, as we will do in a service like this, we gathered everybody together, and we, we had a little time of worship. It was really special. Margot's with us today. And so we were, we were having a little worship, and just as we were about to pray, uh, I always ask people to silence their cell phones, uh, which, by the way, would be a good cue for you now to make sure that you silence your cell. So I ask everybody to do that. And, and then we were just about to pray. We were talking about the meaning of this service when all of a sudden the ringtone went off. And I gotta tell you, I was irritated. I mean, I, I just got through saying it, and the ringtone goes, goes off, and, and nobody, well, a few people moved. We were all frisking ourselves to make sure that it was somebody else's phone, and in the process, it just went on and on and on, and then I recognized that the ringtone was strangely familiar. <laughs> I, I had laid my suit coat on the kneeling rail before we started, and it was my phone. <laughs> I mean, there, there are moments when there's nowhere to hide, and, and I thought about picking it up and saying, uh, yes, Lord, we're right in the middle of a baptism right now. <laughs> but I thought they'll never buy it. And so I had to acknowledge my hypocrisy at my own expense, the joy that was on their faces, you should have seen it, <laughs> and repent and ask their forgiveness which is what you do when your conduct violates your values. 
core values. Last week we looked at Vanderbilt University, Belmont University, Marriott Hotels for their core values. I was looking at some others this week. The YMCA, for example, four core values, caring, honesty, respect, responsibility. I like that. Chick-fil-A across the street, the Chick-fil-A across from Brentwood United Methodist Church has four core values. We're here to serve, we're better together, we're purpose-driven, we pursue what's next. That's good. And my favorite is Pixar. Pixar has six core values, the most of any organization I've seen yet. And here's the six. Let me try this out on you. Failure isn't a necessary evil. Don't confuse the process with the goal. Number three, quality is the best business plan. Number four, and this is my favorite, people are more important than issues. Number five, everybody should be able to talk to anybody. Love that. And then finally, number six, prepare for the unknown. Life is plan B. Every organization has, the church has core values, and we looked at BUMC's core values. Last week we have five, and so this is a five-week series, and we talked last week about the first of our core values, which is to be Christ-centered. And we said a Christ-centered people is a Christ-minded people. In other words, what we said is that if we can learn to think like Jesus, then maybe we can learn to live like Jesus and love like Jesus and resemble Jesus. I think that's why we're here today. That's why we attend Sunday school. That's why we go to small group. That's why we have Bible study. That's why we do worship and music and chancel choir. That's why we study and that's why we have fellowship because we're trying to train to think like Jesus, Christ-centered. The second core value that I want to think with you for just a few minutes uh, this morning is the core value of the ministry of all believers. All believers. That, that's the notion that every one of us who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior are called of God and gifted for ministry. Isn't it wonderful that you don't have to go to seminary to be a pastor, a minister, to be in service? You don't have to wear a stole or a robe. You don't have to stand in a pulpit or be ordained. All of us are called by virtue of our baptism and are gifted for ministry, for mission, for service. And there are several texts, particularly in the New Testament, that itemize these gifts uh, I have a slide of those. Romans 12 is one, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, uh, 1 Peter 4, that in these four texts, it's not an exhaustive list. It's not a comprehensive list. It's a representative list of the gifts that God gives to his people by virtue of our faith in Christ. And I think that a part of a, the core value that we share here, that it's really important to know your gift and then to use your gift. Ephesians 4.11, Michael, that you read for us a moment ago, not only lists a few of these gifts, but then goes on to speak about the purpose 
of the gifts. Because though they're diverse, though they're different, they have the exact same purpose. And you see this in Ephesians 4.11. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For what? To equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, the knowledge of Jesus, the experience of Christ, and to, I love this, maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. So as important as it is to know the gift and to use it, we got to understand the purpose of our God-given gifts, which include building others up, spiritual unity, knowledge of Jesus, and growing in maturity. There's one other key point in this text that I want to mention. In addition to knowing the purpose of our gifts, we also kind of need some clarity around the manner by which we use our gifts. And you see this in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, writing from Roman prison cell, incarcerated the year 62 AD, he's waiting almost any moment for the verdict that will lead to his execution, so forgive him if he seems like he's in a hurry. He is. I, Paul, therefore the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. For your common, for your core value to become your core calling. And to do it, watch this, with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another in love. Making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to notice that I've highlighted and emboldened three key words here. Humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the core virtues that foster spiritual unity, that foster shalom, peace. In fact, if you want to know how to get turmoil and disunity, do a reverse paraphrase of that text. Humility becomes arrogance and then hostility and impatience. That is guaranteed to produce disunity and chaos. Now, you may disagree with what I'm going to say now, and if you do, it's okay. You've been wrong before, but one of the virtues that is most needed and most absent in our culture is patience. It's interesting to me that in the Greek language, that word makrothumia in Greek is a compound word. Makro, you know that means big or long. Thumia means suffering. The word means long-suffering or long-tempered. It means you don't have a short fuse. It means you don't have a hair trigger. One of the things I hate to see sometimes when I'm on the road or on the interstate is to see someone with road rage going 90 miles an hour, and when they pass me, they have a fish on the back of their car. Some of you have told me that's why I don't have a fish on the back of my car. It's the ability to bear offense and injury. Occasionally when I coach young pastors, I will say to them that if you're going to do this for 40 or 50 years, 
You're going to have to learn to take a punch without delivering one in response. Now, after 40 years, I have a lot of calluses on my backside, but they haven't entered into my heart. Macrothemia, it's the capacity to remain calm in the face of provocation and misfortune. Or I like this definition, macrothemia patience is the power to see things through when you're not sure where it's headed. I read recently that in the Greek culture, in the Greek context, that macrothemia was thought to be the ability to be patient with people, especially annoying people. And what's interesting to me is that this word is not only a fruit of the Spirit, but more importantly, it is an attribute of God. And so this is not something that we conjure in ourselves. It doesn't come natural to us. It is a gift of God. It is a part of the character of God. You see this in Exodus 34. The Lord our God is compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You see it in Psalm 103, the Lord is long-suffering and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. You look in the New Testament, you'll see it in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but God is patient towards us, not wishing that any would perish, but that all of us would come to repentance. And I want to confess to you that sometimes when I reflect on the patience of God, of how patient God has been with me, I'm embarrassed of how impatient I could be with others, some of them in my, my own family, my own home. Patience. One of the books that I read while I was away was a book by a theologian who happens to be a Mennonite whose name is Dr. Alan Kreider, K-R-E-I-D-E-R. I have a copy of his book. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. This is a, this is a must read, I think, for church leaders. I love the subtitle, which is The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And it was improbable. Dr. Kreider makes the case that the primary virtue that enabled the church in its infancy to gain the respect and curiosity of the culture was its patience. They didn't try to coerce anybody. They weren't trying to pressure or manipulate folk. They didn't have a strategic long-range plan. In fact, they didn't even have a New Testament. That would come years later fourth century. They didn't have a creed like we do other than three words, Jesus is Lord. But Dr. Kreider says in the book, I'll tell you what they did have. They had a personal experience with the risen Christ. They had a personal relationship with Christ, and they had a faith community that enabled them to patiently live out their faith in a manner that captured the attention of their neighbors. This in spite of mockery, this in spite of harassment and persecution, this tiny band of peculiar, 
long-suffering people just modeled the values of Jesus. And three centuries later, Christianity becomes legalized in Rome. It was patience. It's the ability to see it through that made the difference. One of the early church fathers, his name is Cyprian, third century bishop of Carthage, once said these words, nothing else distinguishes the unjust from the just more than this, that in adversity the unjust man complains and blasphemes because of impatience, while the just man is proved by patience. Dr. E. Stanley Jones said that the early Christians never said in dismay, look what the world has come to. Rather, they said, look what has come into the world. Look who has come into the world. Now, I don't know about you. This, this is not an innuendo towards you. This, this is me. I have a tendency sometimes to overstate my own anguish while at the same time under, understating my own faith and hope as though somehow in our adversity that God has left us to our own devices. It's not true. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Patience. I read a troubling article recently it was written by Jake Metter. Jake Metter, Metter is editor-in-chief of an online magazine called Mere Orthodoxy. And he's concerned, as are we, about how culture is increasingly becoming de-churched. He concludes that our churches are not requiring too much of us, but too little of us. And he writes this interesting quote. The tragedy of American churches is that we have too often been content to function as some kind of vaguely spiritual NGO, an organization of detached individuals who meet together for religious services that inspire us, provide practical life advice, or offer positive emotional experiences, but do not necessarily offer through our witness and example an alternative way to live. He goes on, the problem before us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in community with other people. And I don't know where else you find this kind of grace apart from a patient, forbearing, loving community of saints. I don't know where else you can find it. Last word. Sometimes you see it, don't you? Sometimes you see this kind of forbearing love in our own place. They came to see me in my office last week, a couple who has recently moved from the Northeast to Nashville. Uh, I have 
I have a great affection for them. They asked to come see me. I had no idea what it was about. I didn't know if they were troubled by something or maybe something in their family. But when I opened the door to them, it was clear that there was great joy in their faces. And they said, we have come to tell you something that's brought us joy in, in our ministry. And they're not pastors, they're not ordained. Through one of our missional partners in Nashville called Siloam Health, in a particular program they've started called Nashville Neighbors. They said, we volunteered to mentor a family who had moved over from Afghanistan, a couple with three small children. The children are just, a couple of them just starting school. And they were sort of trapped in Afghanistan. And two years ago when we left there, I think it was August the 30th, somehow by the grace of God, they were able to escape and get on a plane and they were sent to Nashville. We volunteered to be assigned to them through Siloam. The kids, again, two are beginning school. And, and they said, we just wanted to come and tell you about the joy of that relationship. In fact, they, they said, we think it means more to us than it does to the family. And I said, why did you do it? And they said, we, we, couldn't, we, we couldn't get away from this call. We heard in our Sunday school class when you were talking about Exodus, remember to befriend the aliens among you because you once were aliens. And I have to tell you, I was awed by their testimony because what they were doing was they were reducing ministry to its simplest form. They said, all we're doing is befriending a stranger in need as others have befriended us in our need. And it doesn't take a stole or a degree or an ordination. It only takes a profession of faith and baptism. And they're doing the work of ministry with humility and gentleness and patience. I have to tell you what a joy it is sometimes to be a pastor and to sit at the feet of your own people who are living core values as core practices. Everybody has a ministry. Everybody has a call with your name on it. Whatever your gift, and they are diverse, the purpose is the same, to build others up to create spiritual unity, to increase the understanding of Jesus, and to enable us to become mature in Christ, to grow up, and maybe even, maybe even reach the measure of the full stature of Christ. And when we do, there is shalom, there is unity, there is peace. When core values become core practices, God is honored and the community is blessed. May it be so in me, in you, in Jesus' name, amen.